The following message features Bob Coughlin and was recorded at the third main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God UK 2014 conference. It's entitled Faithful to Engage. Bob is the director of Sovereign Grace Music. We're looking at what God calls us to be faithful in as we gather to meet with Him as the church. Craig spoke to us last time on being faithful to receive God's grace. Jeff spoke to us this morning about being faithful to proclaim God's word and the gospel. And tonight I want to speak on what many of us have just done, and that is being faithful to engage. Faithful to engage with God. When I use the word engage, I'm, I'm drawing on David Peterson's definition of worship in his book, Engaging with God. And it's this, worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Let me read that again. Worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. What does it mean to engage with God, to have an engagement with God? Well, it's a term that suggests connection, intersection, interaction, like gears that are meshing together smoothly. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's texting someone else while you're talking to them? Checking Facebook? This has never happened to my wife. She's never experienced that with anybody that she knows. They're with you in body, but that's about it. You know they're there in front of you, but you know their, their mind, their, their heart, everything is, is somewhere else. That's an example of what it looks like when someone's not engaged. God wants us to engage with him. And we, we pick that up. We get that idea from the words that we translate as worship, the Hebrew and Greek words that we translate worship. There are a number of words that we translate worship, and taken together, they communicate a response to God's self-revelation that combine attitudes and actions of things like reverence and submission and service and awe and praise and gratefulness and trust and love. In other words, the relationship God wants to have with us requires us being engaged with him. Those aren't words you can do half-heartedly or absent-mindedly. Those aren't actions you can perform without really thinking about it. So he says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and to keep 
the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Involvement, engagement, interaction, wholeheartedness. Romans 12.1, New Testament. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, everything about you, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable worship. It involves everything, including your bodies. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And it seems like as Christians, we can be prone to compartmentalize our relationship with God, our worship of God. You know, some of us want to keep it in the realm of the intellect, the cerebral. We, we know a lot of stuff about God. Some of us want to keep it in the realm of the, the heart, the emotions, the soul. We feel a lot of things for God. We don't know him that well, but we, we love him. We, we're really emotional about him. And then some Christians want to keep it, keep the relationship with God in, in the area of, of serving and, and physical expressions. I'm going to do, I'm going to do for God. God doesn't let us do that. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to engage with him. He wants to be exalted, not only in our minds, not only in our emotions or in our bodies. He wants everything. Because he's worthy of everything. He deserves everything like nothing else. He deserves everything. One one person defined worship as this. Worship is all of me responding to all of who God has revealed himself to be. All of me. All of me. Now in the Old Testament, what the Israelites did when they gathered was meant both to reflect and shape what they did in their daily lives. So it is with us today. What we do when we gather both shapes, influences, and reflects what we do in our daily lives. So I'm going to be focusing on the gathering, but everything we're talking about tonight has relevance to the way we live our lives. And in fact, if it doesn't, that, that really reveals a hypocrisy. That reveals a, a half-heartedness, which the, the Lord has spoken against numerous times. Our gatherings and our daily lives are meant to feed into one another. But we're going to be focusing on the gathering, worshiping God with our mind, soul, and body. So let's begin, worshiping God with my mind. One of the primary ways we engage with God is with our minds. I don't know if this is is so much so in in the UK. I'm sure there are aspects of this throughout the world. But in the States, there's sometimes this this anti-intellectual attitude in the church. A perspective that that if you really want to worship God, you don't want to think. You just just kind of empty your mind and experience God. God. And it shows up in comments like these. Well, I, I don't like to sing wordy songs because they, they, they make me have to think too much. And there is, a, there is a legitimacy sometimes to that. 
But it can also reveal this attitude of, I just don't want to use my mind a whole lot when I'm engaging with God, when, when I'm encountering him as I sing. I, I, just want to, I just want to kind of let it flow. So uh, I remember being in a church plant and a, a woman saying to me, you know, I can't worship God with the songs you guys do here. They, they, they're just too many words in them. You know, and, and I'm thinking, well, no, that's, that's why like, we can use these songs, because there are words in them. Uh, th- we, we're not going like, to join together and hum to the Lord. We, we, are, we are actually saying things about him, seeing things about him that mean something, just as we did tonight. What a wonderful introduction. What a wonderful, not even an introduction. It was just, it was just I could have ended the meeting there. We could have ended there. Just so rich reflecting on, on who the Lord is and, and what he's done. I once heard a speaker at a conference in, invite everybody at the conference to shout out the name of their denomination. So, so everybody did. So let's, let's do that right now. Let's, on the count of three, shout out the name of your denomination. One, two, three. Okay. Just an indistinct roar. Nobody really stood out. Okay, now, let's say the name of the head of the church together on three. One, two, three. Jesus. Okay, there you go. Jesus Christ. But we heard Jesus Christ. Here was his point. See, doctrine divides us. Jesus unites us. And I thought, no, that's the wrong point. (laughs) He wasn't the first person in history to pit doctrine against a true knowledge of God, and he won't be the last. We don't want to do that because God doesn't want us to do that. Jesus unites us only as we agree on who Jesus is. He came to earth. And he came to earth as the incarnate Son of God, pre-existing with the Father in glory and the Spirit from all eternity. That's who Jesus is. He lived in a perfect life of obedience before his Father. He suffered at the hands of those he created. He bore the sins of those he came to redeem upon himself. He suffered in their place. And anyone who trusts in him And his finished work can be forgiven and reconciled to God. He was raised from the dead bodily. That's who Jesus is. So when we talk about Jesus, we need to know who he is. We need to think about him. And not just think we know him. We really need to seek to know him through the means that God has given us, which is his word. Now, it's true that you can know information about God and not actually know him through that information. There are people who know a lot of the Bible, but don't really know the God of the Bible. Jesus said to the Pharisees at one point in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So our knowledge of God, our thinking about God, as Jeff said so well this morning, is meant to lead us to God. 
It's meant to lead us to Jesus Christ. There's a difference between knowing doctrine about God and being devoted to God. But, having said that, God wants to use our knowledge of him to draw our hearts to him. Not to turn us away from him, but to draw our hearts to him. He reveals himself to us through the truth, and if we love God, we'll want to know him better. We'll want to find out what he's really like. We won't be content with impressions or emotional experiences. How horrible that would be if marriage was like that where you were married to someone, but you never really got to know them. You just kind of felt good things towards them. You don't really want to know what they're really like. You just want to feel good about them. That's how some of us relate to God. Some Christians relate to God. We we don't want to know him too well. We just want to know him kind of vaguely. Listen to what Michael Horton in his book, A Better Way, says about that. Vagueness about the object of our praise inevitably leads to making our own praise the object. Praise, therefore, becomes an end in itself. And we are caught up in our own worship experience rather than in the God whose character and acts are the only proper focus. So we don't want to worship a vague God. We want to worship God in truth. As Christians, God calls us not only to love him, but to love the truth about him in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. John 17.3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, knowing, knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one he has sent. We worship the God who is the truth and who claimed that the truth, not simply an experience, would set us free, although experiences can be great. But those experiences are defined by who God is and what he came to do. I love the way Stuart at the end, before the last song tonight, talked about God refreshing us and then reminded us this is the source of that refreshment. Knowing the power of the cross. Knowing the one who came to bear our sins upon himself. Oh yes. Oh yes, that makes that refreshing really secure. Because Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? From the greater to the lesser. If God would give give his own son for us, how will he not take care of us? And we receive refreshing through that thought. God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth, and he reveals his wrath against those who suppress the truth. Romans 1.18. God is all about truth. He's all about knowledge. He's all about reality. And we want to be too. We want to love God with our minds. Some of us did well in school. Some of us didn't do so well. And really, that has no relation to what we're talking about right now. You may be thinking, well, you know, I didn't do so well growing up, and I didn't go very far. And I know you have different names for this, the levels here. Whatever, maybe, is fifth level very high? No? So maybe some of you always, you just feel like you're fifth level. You know, that's as far as I can go. You know what? In, in your relate, is that right? There's no such thing as fifth level. Oh, what do they call them? A level. Oh, A level. B level? A. Is there a B level? 
What would you say to someone if you wanted to say, you're not very smart? Just look at you? No, 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 no. You may think, well, I didn't, I don't, I don't do well in academics. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't just a good student. God enables us to know him. God enables us to know him well. And he's given us a spirit so that we might know him well. The better, the more accurately we know God through his word, the more genuine our worship will be. You know, there's that line in uh, 10,000 Reasons, sing like never before. What does that mean? Sing like never before. What, like sing on my head or sing with, while I'm drinking water? What does that mean? Sing like never before. You know how we can sing like never before? By knowing God better. That's how we can sing like never before. Sometimes that phrase is thrown around. We're going to worship God like you've never worshipped him before. Well, that, we can do that if we know him better. Because we see how glorious he is a little better. That's why worshiping God must engage our minds and our understanding. We are articulating, declaring, understanding, and valuing the truth about God. Who he is and especially what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. So if you have trouble with wordy songs, if you have trouble with, well, I just, I just like the simpler songs. It's not wrong to like simpler songs. It's wrong to like them exclusively. As though, God, as though God's glory and his greatness and his works could be contained in the simplest of phrases, in the simplest of words. It can be in some ways, but not in all ways. That's why God has given us words through which we can know him, and particularly his word through which we can know him. So we worship God with our minds. When scripture is read in the middle of a song, I think Jeff made this point this morning, when scripture is read, it engages our minds, which then informs our hearts. So let's move on to the next aspect of how we engage with God. Worshiping God with my soul. What do we do with the truth about God? It's an important question. Because sometimes Christians make it their aim just to know the truth about God. And some bad things happen. You know, when you mention the word theologian, and I wish I'd been Mike Reeves' seminar this morning, or this afternoon, where he talked about why you are a theologian before you're a musician. Theologian is not a bad word. Every one of us is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. It's just whether we're a good theologian or a bad theologian. We're a good theologian if what we believe lines up with Scripture. We're a bad theologian if it doesn't. We're a bad theologian if we don't care. Some interpret the theologian label as a bad label. Well, theologians, they're just, they, 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 they just sit in rooms, they have wrinkly skin, and they're just dry, and they're boring, and they just, they just don't get out much. But they know a lot of the Bible. That's what a theologian is. Well, we want to we wanna dispense with that stereotype and, and recognize that good theologians are the most passionate Christians because they know God. And our understanding, the use of our minds, isn't an end in itself. 
It's, it's not the goal just to know as much Bible, as many Bible verses as we can. You know, if you have Bible quizzes in the UK, but they have those back in the States, and you know, some kids grow up, they just memorize massive numbers of scriptures. But it doesn't always lead to an affected heart. And, and oftentimes, or sometimes, it can lead to pride, a pharisaical spirit where you look down on someone because you know more Bible verses than they do. Have you ever felt that? I used to feel that way with Julie. I used to think, well, I have my quiet times all the time, and I'm just really regular in my devotions, and Julie's not as regular. It's when we first got married. She doesn't do it. So I, at the end of the day, when I'd come home, I'd check to see if her Bible had moved. <laughs> it was horrible. You know, and then I think, I think Julie said to me at one point, you know, if like knowing a lot of the Bible would make me like you, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. <laughs> And it was very convicting. (laughs) That's not where it's supposed to lead, our knowledge of God. It's supposed to lead to affecting our souls, our emotions, our heart. There are different terms for it. Psalm 103, verse 1 and 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. I love the comprehensiveness of these verses. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We're bringing the mind in again. God always wants to bring the mind in, the truth in, because he doesn't want us to simply emote. He wants us to be emoting because something's true, and it's affecting us. The Craigle Dictionary of the Bible and Theology defines soul this way. It's the seat of of emotions, desires, passions, and experiences. All those things that Christians are sometimes drawn to or or try to stay away from. Emotions, desires, passions, experiences. That's what the soul is. So scripture says we're to pour out our souls to God from the depths of our hearts. Psalm 42, 4. We're to lift up our souls to him. Psalm 25, verse 1. We're to lift up our souls to him, our desires, our emotions, our passions. We're to love him with all our souls, Deuteronomy 6, 5 says. We're to love him with all our souls. We're to boast in him with our souls, Psalm 34, 2. It's one thing to know and declare true things about God. The devils do that. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So the demons know those things. When, When demons would see Jesus, You are the Son of God. They know who He is. We wouldn't call that worship, though. They weren't worshiping Him. They were just declaring who He was. Because their souls weren't delighting in him, in him. They weren't cherishing and treasuring the truth about him. And that's what God intends for us to do. He wants to cherish and treasure the truth about him because we cherish and treasure him. We love him. Which is why Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. If you realize the, the unexpectedness of that command, delight yourself in the Lord? So, has someone ever told you to do that? You, you see, and maybe it might be a song, okay? Someone plays you a song, and they say, like that song. 
And you're thinking, I don't really like it. I, I, yeah, I, you know, we have people in our churches like this. You know, we want them to like the song. They're saying, I don't like it. I don't like it. And we just can't say, delight yourself in the song. That's not going to affect them. But here's what the Lord says to us. Delight yourself in the Lord. Why does he say that? How can he say that? Because he's the source of all this good and beautiful and amazing and wondrous and awesome. And we're missing something if we're not delighting in him with our souls. Listen to what 1 Peter 1.8 says. I love this. Peter's describing what our response to Jesus should be. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and, that's the mind part, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What does that look like? A joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, filled with glory. What does that look like? Well, that's something worth thinking about. Because that's what Peter says we're doing, or we are to do. Be filled with a joy, to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God doesn't receive glory He takes no pleasure in our worship when it isn't connected to our hearts. It says in Matthew 15, 8, Jesus is speaking about the people whose worship isn't connected to their hearts. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me. God wants our souls connected. He wants our souls engaged. Which raises a question, well, what do you do when your soul isn't engaged? What do you do when you're really tired? What do you do when you just found out three days ago that you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness? Or maybe a week ago, or maybe six months ago. What do you do when you're in relational conflict with a friend or a spouse or a child and your soul just ain't doing much engaging? Your soul is just wanting to hide or cry or run away or just shrivel up. What do we do then? God is always our answer. God himself provides the answer for when our souls aren't responding. John Piper says this, when when we are not uh, red hot for God. I I can't say it better. I don't think I can say anything better than John Piper does. Um, This is what he says when, when we're not engage with God in our souls. 
This does not mean that worship is authentic only when you are red hot for God. It can mean that when you are not red hot, your heart feels a longing for the passion that you once knew or want to know more of. That longing offered to God is also worship. Or it can mean remorse that even the longing is gone and you are scarcely able to feel anything but sadness that you don't feel what you should. That remorse offered to God is also worship. It says to God that he is the only hope for what you need. So don't have an all or nothing attitude about worship. The heart can be real even if it is not inflamed with zeal as it ought to be, which it never is in this life. So do you get that? It's very important. Someone said to me once that you never get rid of self by focusing more on yourself. And that's exactly what we do sometimes. A lot of times. We're struggling internally. And we just start to think more about it. Why am I doing this? This is horrible. I'm a Christian. I don't feel anything. I just, I don't even want to be here. And we think that that's going to bring us out of, of the state we're in. And it won't. It won't. Here's what will. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. And that includes the sin of, of not delighting in the Lord right now. The best thing to do at that moment is just to acknowledge our weakness, our need. God, you have saved my life. You have redeemed me from the pits of hell. You have redeemed me from experiencing your wrath. You have have prepared for me eternal pleasures at your right hand. And right now, I could care less. I couldn't care less. Thank you for dying, for sending Jesus to die for the, the lack of response I feel right now, for my coldness right now. Thank you that that doesn't keep you from loving me. Thank you that even in the midst of my apathy, even in the midst of my coldness, Jesus has still come. Jesus is still a Savior. And the more we, we reflect on what God has done and who he is, we find those, those cold ashes start to glow with a faint ember. And it's the faint ember of God's spirit who alone can do that work in our soul. So when you hear about loving God with your soul, don't interpret that as, oh, well, I've just, I've just got to be a happy Christian all the time. It's not what that's saying. A joy inexpressible and full of glory is what God wants to put in every believer's heart. He wants us to live in the good of that. There are times when we won't. But that doesn't mean we can't return to him again and again and again and again for grace to be affected in our souls by the knowledge of how good God has been to us. I shared this 
at some point in the conference, I don't remember what context it was. But Spurgeon said, no one will ever stand before God and say to him, I thought you were good, but you weren't as good as I expected. No one will ever say that. Here's what we'll say. I thought you were good, but I didn't have the smallest idea of how good you really are. That day will come. For every believer, that day will come. And anticipating that day can affect our souls even now. So we stir our souls to love God with the truth. So we worship God with our minds. We worship God with our souls. And that is going to have an effect. So I want to talk thirdly about worshiping God with our bodies. Now again, biblically speaking, when, when Paul says prevent, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual worship, he's not talking about what we do in a meeting. He's talking about what we do in all of life. But go with me for a minute here. Why is what we do in a meeting different from what we do in life? Other than the fact that we're singing together. We're hearing the word of God preached. I mean, there are things that are different. But in terms of our response, in terms of the joy that's inexpressible and full of glory, why would that not show in our meetings as well as in our daily lives? God wants to connect those two. So hear what I'm saying as relevant to the way we live our lives and not just what we do in a meeting. What I want to talk for about a moment, for a moment is just the place of, of our bodies in, in public worship, gathered worship. Does God care what we do? Is, is he interested at all? Well, I think if you've been with me up to this point, you'd say, well, he must be. I mean, because he's interested in all of us, every part of us, mind, soul, body. It's the whole deal, the whole package. And so singing to the Lord, attending public worship with his people, isn't simply an intellectual activity. We don't come just to have our minds stimulated. Although that's a good thing, but that's not all. We don't come to just have our emotions moved. That's a good thing as well. We come to display somehow, in some way, the glories of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So does God care about what we do with our bodies? If he does, how should we respond? Now, let's be clear about this. What's going on in our hearts matters more than what we're doing with our bodies. Whether or not we're obeying God in our daily lives matters more than what we're doing when we gather. Singing rich doctrinal truths in a physically conservative congregation is much better than jumping around with a lively congregation that is belting out shallow man-centered songs. No question. But why do we have to make that choice? Don't you yearn? I'm saying this because you're a Christian, I trust, and because you're at this conference. Don't you yearn 
to have a life that is completely surrendered over to God's glory. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Engaging with God through our minds and souls most naturally leads to engaging with him through our bodies. So I want to spend some time talking about the biblical evidence for what we're to do with our bodies, some benefits, some limits, and then some hindrances. And then we're going to invite the band up to uh, sing a final song. Some of us can, can treat our bodies like the Gnostics did. The, the, the Gnostics um, have, have been a, a, a thought system throughout history, basically who believe that the physical world is bad. It's, it's just, you know, it's kind of a, a oops on the whole spectrum of things. And, and so we don't really want to give a lot of attention to it. And Christianity is not like that. Jesus came in the flesh. He lived as a man, as a human being, which was a loud statement towards God's loving what he created. Human beings, man, male and female. So what do we do with them? Well, God doesn't leave us without evidence in Scripture. While worship is always first and foremost a matter of the heart, biblically, it's never unrelated to what we do with our bodies. The words that we translate worship from the Greek and Hebrew, hishachava and proskuneo, both have reference to a physical action. That physical action is bowing down. It's It's bending over. That gesture communicated an attitude of grateful submission, homage, or praise used to describe the attitude of honor from an inferior held towards a superior. Other worship words have to do with service, acts of service, physical acts of service. It's helpful to include the words for praise in our discussion. Various Hebrew words for praise infer movement, like todah, throwing forth the hands, and barak, kneeling. And it's just fascinating that when God wants to tell us how we are to relate to him, what our response to him is to be, it often has reference to a physical movement. And they point to the fact that if we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's somehow going to reflect it in our bodies. That's why we see so many scriptural commands and examples that have to do with our bodies. Just a few here. Singing, Psalm 47.6. Kneeling, Psalm 95.6. Lifting hands to bless, Psalm 134, verse 2. Lifting hands in prayer. 1 Timothy 2.8, bowing before the Lord, Psalm 95, verse 6, clapping to the Lord, Psalm 47.1, shouting to the Lord, Psalm 33.1, weeping before the Lord, spontaneous expression of the Israelites when they heard the law being read, Nehemiah 8, 6 through 9, playing instruments to the Lord, dancing, Psalm 150, dancing, Psalm 149.3, I appreciate what Stuart said about that. Just shifting weight from one foot to the other. That's where a lot of us should just stay right there. Standing in awe, Psalm 33, 8. Falling down, 1 Corinthians 14, 25. Revelation 1, 17. Our bodies can be used to communicate a variety of emotions, not just one. Uh, some, some Christians have, have uh, um, 
reduced physical expression to raising hands. That's what you do. This is how you know you're engaged. That's, that's it. And, and actually, the examples and commands in Scripture are much more diverse, much greater variety. Although some of these are commands, we're not in sin if we don't lift our hands at a particular moment. You know, people have asked, well, does that mean if you don't dance, you're like sinning? No. Praise God. <laughs> if we don't lift our hands, does that mean we're sinning? No. But we want to ask, is there something of the heart behind these actions and commands and examples that God wants us to apply to our own culture? A better question to ask is not, are we commanded to do these things, but do our minds and hearts and bodies reflect the overall biblical model for how we are to respond to the greatness and goodness of God? Because he has called a people out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies. And there are many ways of doing that. So I want to look next at the benefits of physical expression. Why why is God even concerned about this? What's what's the difference? What difference does it make? Why are you even taking time to talk about this? Can we just go back to singing? Let's, Let's talk about some of the benefits. One benefit of magnifying God Uh, of of worshiping God, heart, soul, and body, is that we magnify the glory of God. We make it bigger. Psalm 108, verse 1 and 2. Listen to David. My heart is steadfast, O God. That's my soul, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Everything. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. We magnify God's glory by our enthusiasm about him. When I'm with, when I'm with Julie, so glad you're here for this. I give this message all the time when Julie's not here. I just have to talk about her. Now I can see her. When I'm with Julie in public, I want other people to know how I feel about her. If, if I was looking at my wife and just thinking, Julie, I'm glad you're here. It's a joy to have you with me on this trip to Bath. I love you. Now, all those things are true. But that's not how I want to say them. I wouldn't even try to say them. If I was to say to, to Julie, um, I hug you, it really wouldn't mean much. We wouldn't have much of a marriage. I, that's a physical action. So God says, there are plenty of ways you can demonstrate my glory. Some people say, well, I'm just not, I'm just not like that. I, I just don't like to do that. Well, well, we'll address that in just a moment. When we magnify the worth of God through our bodies, we're saying to others, my God is so great, I will praise him with my whole being. I just can't keep it in my mind. I just can't keep it in my heart. I've got to to use everything because he's so great. So that's one reason, one benefit. Another benefit, we follow the scriptural example. There are many actions we think might honor God. I'm going to roller skate for God. Well, that's wonderful. I, it's not in the Bible, though. 
you know, I'm going to do flips for God. Well, that's great that you can do that. I'm so excited, but that's not in the Bible either. A lot of things in the Bible that I just read that God says, these honor me. Third benefit, we can encourage others through our physical expression. Now, if you're a leader, you should know this. I don't know. I've lost count of the number of leaders I've talked to. It says, I just get so discouraged when I lead. Well, why is that? You're singing these great truths about God, about his mercy to us in Christ. Well, I just get discouraged when I look out and see certain people in my congregation. It's like, are they alive? <laughs> They're standing. They must be breathing. But I'm just not seeing anything. And I'm thinking... This is, this is a word for those of us who are in a congregation at times. We can encourage others through our countenance, through our bodies. And most of the time, or a lot of the time, we're unaware of it. Because we're living right here. Just thinking about what we're thinking about and unaware that we could be drawing attention to the greatness and glory of God and encouraging those around us. Have you ever looked out and seen someone just tears streaming down their face? Singing, it is well with my soul, knowing that they just lost a child. And doesn't that encourage your heart? Or to see joy on people's faces because they're engaging mind and soul. Psalm 34, verse 5 says, Those who look to him are what? Radiant, shining, glowing. Their faces will never be ashamed. We should, we should all video ourselves on Sunday morning and just, just take a little quiz, you know. Okay, how much radiance up there? Anybody radiant up there? And again, understand, this isn't a plastic radiance. This isn't, okay, everybody put your happy face on like we used to tell our little kids. Put your happy face on. No, it's not. What we're saying is think about how great God is. Think about the Savior who's come to redeem you. Look to him, and your face will be radiant. So it encourages others. We encourage our own hearts. Another benefit. We encourage our own hearts. Expressing devotion to God physically can stir up affection in my heart. I I lift my hands to God sometimes just because I'm saying, God, I need you. I need you right now. I'm so weak. I'm so tired. You know, some congregations, are, they're just kind of programmed to lift our hands at a certain chorus. You know, you're singing these great truths about God. You know, da, 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 hallelujah. And then it's just like, yes, no, no. No, it's, you know, I've, I've been in situations sometimes where the word of God is being read and people just start to lift their hands. That's what they did in Nehemiah. They lifted their hands, they knelt, they wept. What was going on? Was it the latest Chris Tomlin song being played? (laughs) It was the word of God being read. Why, Why don't we think that could happen today? Why doesn't it happen today? Here's what I know. I want to be a person to whom that does happen. I want to be engaged so that I am affected in those ways. Because God is that great. We're not talking about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is seeking to give others a false impression of our spirituality. That's not what we're doing. We're not talking about emotionalism, trying to, to, to um, be emotional without concern for where it comes from. No, we're talking about encouraging our souls by telling our bodies this is the proper response to God. It might be kneeling. 
might be standing in awe. So, limitations of physical expression. It doesn't ensure worship or praise is taking place in the heart. So looking out on a a congregation, it's very staid and still. You don't know whether they're worshiping God or not. You really don't. But what I'm exhorting us to tonight is, well, maybe we should encourage them that they could be an encouragement to others, an encouragement to their own souls, as that does show. But Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, their heart is far from me. So we can be honoring God with our lips and our hearts be far from him. Physical expressions can be self-deceiving. People have exuberantly praised God in song while living in adultery. We might be caught up in a crowd's enthusiasm. I remember one time being at a conference years ago and and, uh, seeing people around me lift their hands. Julie and I were there together. We thought, wow, what is that? I started to lift my hands and all of a sudden it felt like 100-pound bags of sand were in my each hand. It's like... But it wasn't an act of worship. It was just, you know, well, everybody around me is doing it. I might as well, too. You know, so, so no one could tell from my outward expression where my mind and heart were. Physical expressiveness can be self-glorifying and self-gratifying. People can say through their physical expression, look how spiritual I am. Do you have people like that in your church? Have you ever seen people like that? Look how spiritual I am. I love God so much. And it's, it's not God-glorifying, it's self-glorifying. So those are some of the limitations. And now some of the hindrances. Why is, you might, you might, I don't know where you are on this, and actually I've really appreciated how expressive and engaged you all are as a group. It's been a great encouragement to me, just to, to when I've led or, or, or heard you sing, and it's just been very, very encouraging. But I've talked to some people here who've said, well, yeah, my church is not like that at all. And you might be like that. Maybe you're thinking, this is a real stretch for me. This is like way over the line for me. So uh, let me just suggest some, some possible hindrances. One can be a lack of biblical instruction because it's a topic we often avoid. I think if we go to the Bible with an open mind, read God's word with an open mind, we will see time and time again that the worship of God is connected to our minds, our souls, and our bodies. Don't think we can make a case for anything else. So sometimes we know that, and the, the problem is fear of man. The issue is fear of man. Just we're, we're more concerned about what people think what people think, than what God thinks and how glorious God is. We're, we're thinking more about whether the person next to me or behind me is going to think I'm weird than the fact that God is great and awesome and amazing. That's what's, what's ruling our thoughts is the thoughts of the people around us. Well, here's good news for you. No one's thinking about you. Most likely, no one's thinking about you. Uh, now, it can be that in a very conservative church, you can stick out, and I would not encourage that. Um, but in general, people aren't studying you. What, what is she going to do? Oh, I saw a little quiver on her face. Oh, there's, she's reacting. Oh, she's so emotional. No, there, no one's going to do that. Trust me, trust me. Um, tradition or culture, okay? I've, I've, I've spoken in different parts of the world, so it's not like I'm just speaking as an American. I am an American, but uh, in every culture, there are expressive people. So we can only take that so far. <laughs> you know, well, our culture, we just, don't, we just don't engage with anything, really. We just 
Totally. No, no, I've seen Parliament. I mean, I've watched pictures and, uh, or seen, seen uh, yes, the video of that. And uh, yeah, very emotional, very engaged, very active. So I know that, em- that emotions and expressing them are not a problem. Uh, traditions and culture shouldn't be quickly dismissed, but they should be tested against Scripture. And we can sometimes use our culture to justify our lack of engagement with God, really taking the time to really engage with Him. And then there are theological concerns sometimes. How do you distinguish? Here's my, here's my response to that. How do you distinguish between what's appropriate and what's not? If singing is appropriate for worshiping God, why not shouting? Because Psalm 71, 23 convain, contains both. So does Psalm 81, verse 1. Why not lifting hands? That's in the Psalms too. So if we're going to sing, why don't we just like conveniently like knock out all the other expressions that we're not comfortable with? Some of us in our churches, and um, maybe in our, in our own thinking, you know, when a song comes to an end, we think, well, that's the end. Unless someone else has written a song that enables me to express thoughts and emotions to God, I'm not given an inch. <laughs> and whenever I have an opportunity to lead over a period of time, a group of people like that, I, I encourage them. I said, you would never go to a sporting event, watch your team win whatever it is, the World Cup, the, the, biggest, the biggest event, get real excited, and that's over. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to be excited because the event's over. And uh, I just really don't want to be emotional and, and don't want to display any uh, extravagant, uh, you know, affections for my team. So I just have to wait till the next game. <laughs> I just think, no, no, there's sometimes you, this, this truths that you're singing are so great. You just have to respond. Have, there's this overflow. Not every time. It's not like we're just Pavlov's dogs who just, <laughs> after every song, but I, here's the question. Here's the question. Why not ever? Why not ever? That's the question. Are there any physical expressions of worship modeled or commanded in the Bible that you have never engaged in? And if so, why? That's the question. And then a, f- a final uh, limit or uh, hindrance is concern for others, and that is a good concern. We we want our we want our responses, mind, soul, and body, to be biblically informed and natural. Biblically informed and natural response to God's greatness and goodness and Jesus Christ. No one should question whether or not we are moved by the God whose glory we're seeking to exalt. No one should wonder. They should see. Here's a question. Here's another question. Just throw some questions out to you. What does joy inexpressible and filled with glory look like on you? In your daily life and in your singing. As we gather with the saints, it doesn't even just the singing. As you greet people, what does joy inexpressible and filled with glory look like? I mean, if that's this, that's fine. Just let's take steps. Let's take steps this way by remembering how good and how great God is and the mercy he's shown us in Jesus Christ. That's the source of everything we're talking about. That's the source of our worship, isn't it? We've received the gift of worship. And God has called out a people who will magnify him, glorify him, mind, soul, and body. So here's what that looks like as we gather. Stuart, you can come up with a van now as I make this last point. 
As we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. It might be that, that people raise their hands at the thought that, that God is, they're secure in God's plans for them. They're thanking, that, thanking God that his plans for them cannot be thwarted. Isn't that the natural response when people are delivered? When they're saved out of a dire situation? It's like, oh, you see it all the time. Natural response to those who have been delivered, to those who have been saved. It might look like this. We sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. We might just kneel down in adoration as we realize that all my sin was nailed to the cross. It might be as we're singing, crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. As that song finishes its final strains, we might hear joyful acclamations of praise to the omnipotent, sovereign, reigning Savior. You are the king. You are the Lord. You are reigning over all. And you realize that, that our expressions don't have to be just hallelujah. Well, that's a good one. Glory. Praise you. Let's tell the Lord who he is. You are great. You reign above all things. You reign over every detail of my life. Thank you for your sovereignty, your goodness, your kindness. We're providing doctrinal fuel for our emotional fire by doing that. God wants our minds, souls, and bodies thoroughly engaged with him, not only as we gather, but as we live our daily lives. And that engagement will draw people's attention to the reality and greatness and goodness of the God we worship because he is good. Better than we could ever ask or imagine. It'll look different at different times, in different churches, in different cultures. But there's no question that we want to help those in our churches understand that to bring God glory with our minds and souls and bodies is the very reason we were created and redeemed. You've been listening to a message by Bob Coughlin entitled Faithful to Engage. It was given at the third main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries' Worship God UK 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemin.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.